This episode is brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Learn more about how we can help you with fleet recall management and maintenance updates, as well as capture vehicle history and VIN data. Give VinSmart a call at 1-888-950-9550 or visit us on the web at vinsmart.com slash businesses. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the AnvaCast, everyone. Uh, this week, we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Darren Grandel, the Vice President of Traffic Safety and Government Relations for Responsibility.org, talking about drug driving and the impacts not only on driver safety, but as well as the challenges for law enforcement in enforcing impaired driving due to drugs and drug substances. If you haven't listened to part one, I would encourage you, go ahead, press pause now, go back, listen to part one from last week, and then come back and join us for part two. For the rest of you that are ready for part two, here you go. Enjoy the rest of my conversation with Darren Grandel. The problem we're seeing is around the states, and I've heard from a couple of drug recognition experts, is that individuals will drink alcohol after they've consumed cannabis. What we've heard from some of the drivers is, well, if I smoke cannabis and then I just drink a little bit of alcohol, if I get stopped, the officers can't tell if I've been drinking or been smoking. So, you know, and if my driving's bad and if my alcohol level's kind of low, then they might let me go. They don't think we can detect the, you know, drug impairment, where in fact we can. Now, now in the law enforcement world, finding that driver, getting them off the road, citing them, you know, is only one piece of the equation. You mentioned earlier how prosecutors and judges are starting to respond to these cases when charges are filed and the citations against these drivers are, are appearing. Uh, what's happening there on the judicial side? Because when we talk about changing behavior of a driver, you know, sometimes pulling them over by the officer is only one piece. If that punishment doesn't stick, so to speak, you know, the lesson to them is they were able to get away with it. So what, what are the trends you're seeing happening on the judicial side of adjudicating these citations where judges and prosecutors are seeing these scientific pieces of evidence that maybe they were not used to seeing and processing when their world was more the traditional drunk driving world? You know, and it's really dependent upon the area of the country you're in. There are some that I think, you know, like in Washington now, I think that they've been through this process and they are a lot more comfortable with where the research is and where some of those cases can be filed. I think there are some that are very concerned. I think we're in a time and an era of social justice and criminal justice reform. And so when it comes to some of this, it's like, you know, do we charge or or do we not charge? But they're impaired, they've endangered other people. So then we have some states that have driving under the influence laws. Then we have driving under the influence of substantially impaired that would equate to something like, you know, a drug impairment. So, but that's a very subjective, what is, you know, substantial impairment. And then you have like right now, New York was, the legislature was debating a bill. If they legalize marijuana or cannabis, that they would make driving under the influence an infraction and reduce it from a gross misdemeanor. So you really send a message that, oh yeah, it's safer now. When in reality, again, it's very dangerous to be consuming and driving. Now, 
Some of the adjudicative pieces, we have been working with the National District Attorneys Association, John Tompkins Group, and they've created several monographs as far as drug driving. And we're in the process of updating that module and adding a second one to the drunk driving module. And then we just created a cannabis impairment detection workshop handbook. Now, most of your listeners might know what a wet lab is, where we dose people with alcohol at certain levels. Then we have the officers run through the standard field sobriety test to see what kind of different impairment is, you know, with the horizontal gaze, the walk and turn, the one-legged stand. So we've created a, a monograph that would do the training for officers for a green lab. So they'd have participants come in, they would dose them with cannabis, Usually the participants bring their own, but they have to have the labeling to show what the THC concentrations are. But it allows the officers to go through that training. And then it allows even the prosecutors to see what this looks like. And we've seen several in Maryland that they've done and Vermont. Washington has done a couple, Colorado. And I just learned that Missouri just completed a, a green lab. And so it's really able to help the officers be able to articulate those types of impairments. So when they provide a case report for the prosecutor, that these signs and symptoms are pretty clear and that there is some science and research behind this. So prosecutors feel good about making those prosecutorial decisions. Judges have a better feel for this because drunk driving was pretty easy, but the drug driving piece becomes a lot more complex. And, and it's helping them to really understand we've provided lots of resources. We have a judicial advisory board that we have with responsibility.org to help um, identify some of those areas and some gaps that maybe we can help fill to address some of those because that's a big piece. And a lot of it is, you know, for prosecutors and judges is that they have to stay within the limits of the law. And so it's now helping legislators see those elements as well so that they'll put policies in place that can hold impaired drivers accountable. Being able to not create artificial barriers. For instance, there's one state right now where the officer, if he wants to get a search warrant and charge for a drug driving case, he has to identify what the substance is. Not just the drug category, but the actual substance. And so the regular lay officer is not going to know if this is clonazepam or if this is maybe it's meth. So that's why, you know, for DREs, they have a drug category. But unfortunately, the legislature requires their officers to identify the drug. And, you know, there's over 430 drugs just in the federal database for fatal crashes. So it's very difficult to know just off of your field sobriety tests what type of drug. And even DREs don't call a specific drug. So that's a real challenge that that state has in addressing drug driving. I don't think you could go into a doctor's office if you had certain impairment and you didn't tell the doctor what you were prescribed, that the doctor could call that either. So it's almost like the officers in many respects are set up for failure. So it's understanding those policies because then for like our Department of Motor Vehicles, Department of Licensing, they get those reports and they're following the, the law is how do they address those administrative hearings for driving under the influence of alcohol or drugs. And that's where another critical piece comes in is how do they handle that and the adjudicative piece for administrative hearings. So it's a very difficult and complex process that I think, you know, we're really trying to get our arms around and how do we address this thing from all the perspectives and not, well, I don't really understand it, so we're not going to charge that case. And as a trooper, 
I uh, was on my coaching trip back in 1992, and we had responded to a crash where a woman had turned left, and the, the traffic was slow enough where she got T-boned, but when we got to the scene, everybody came up to us, that woman is so drunk. She is completely, well, she is really drunk. And every witness statement, drunk, 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 drunk. Well, we contacted her, couldn't smell any alcohol. We did the portable breath test, no alcohol. Field sobriety tests were miserable. And we'd asked her, have you been drinking? She says, no, I don't drink. And we're like, okay, well, is there any drugs or things that you've taken? And she goes, well, yeah, I have a prescription medication that I take. And it was a muscle relaxant and something else. And she shouldn't have been driving at all. So we went down, we processed her, uh, we did the, the applied consent warnings for blood, got the blood sample, got to court, you know, several months later. And the prosecutor was really excited to take this case because he had never done a drug driving case. So the prosecutor was really excited. Then he came out and said, the judge is not going to let us hear this case. And I'm like, why? He says, because we don't know what this blood level means as far as impairment. I said, it really shouldn't matter what that number is. We don't arrest people based on a number. We arrest people based on their behavior. And that behavior showed that this person was clearly impaired. And we've got multiple witnesses to that effect. Stumbling around, slurred speech, couldn't keep her eyes open. Some people might say she was like on meth or something like on the nod. You know, she just kept falling asleep in the back of the patrol car. You know, we'd have to say, ma'am, could you answer that question? Or what question? So clearly impaired, but the judge would not let us present that case because he did not know what the number on the blood level meant. And that's where it's really important for prosecutors and judges to understand, too, is it's not about a number. What it's really about is did the driving, the observations, the field sobriety tests all equate to the fact this person's clearly impaired. The toxicology report is kind of like the cherry on top most of the time, but really the officers need to articulate that clearly and show that this person's impaired. They, they should have not be driving the vehicle. The reason why and how much is in their system helps tell the story, but at the end of the day, they were not in a proper condition to be driving. Correct. This has been a fascinating conversation. I think, as you say, it's not only complicated, it's very much an emerging issue. Even though someone like you has been working on it for more than a decade now, it's still the very early days of understanding this and figuring out what's going to be the long-term strategies to tackle this epidemic of drug-impaired driving. Absolutely. You know, you see um, across the country, I think in Denver, they just legalized psychedelic mushrooms. You saw in Oregon, they had an initiative 110 that now has legalized hard drugs at certain quantities or decriminalized them. And so they're facing some very unique and difficult challenges. And it's addressing this from so many different, you know, I guess kind of like a full court press good education uh, to the public, what this is, what this isn't. Being able to then help the officers and training them in the really the, the standard field sobriety test, making sure that they get that refresher training, making sure officers are A-Ride trained in DRE. Prosecutors that really understand this, and that's why we're working with the National District Attorneys Association, is to help enhance their own training and exposure to this to address that piece. Also with judges and being able to help them understand, you know, how does this work? Why is this so different? I just presented to a state here a couple of weeks ago on the, the impacts of legalization from cannabis and kind of showing what those signs and symptoms are. And some of them were like, wow, I would never have recognized that as a sign or of a symptom of cannabis impairment. So it's really very clear to know 
know what those might be, even with legislators and being able to see what kind of policies are really effective, uh, what kind of countermeasures are evidence-based that we can employ in a state to be able to address this ongoing issue. You know, we've seen uh, the impacts that the opioid epidemic has had. We see now with fentanyl, we've seen a lot of high-profile cases where fentanyl has been a cause for that. And it's not just fentanyl. We're seeing fentanyl now mixtures with methamphetamine, fentanyl mixed with what they call etizolam, which is an anticonvulsant type of medication. And we see those combinations and we're like, wow, how are these people actually functioning to even get into a car to drive? And so there's a lot of these things that we look at. But the one thing what we've realized, Ian, is that there's not one organization that is leading the charge on uh, multi-substance or poly-substance impaired driving. Hmm responsibility.org was working in Michigan and we'd been working with uh, Brian Swift whose parents were killed in 2013 by a commercial vehicle driver who was under the influence of cannabis. It was the only substance on board. His father was killed instantly and his mother succumbed to injuries. I think it was two days later. And that was like the 23rd, 24th of March, 2013 up in Northern Michigan. Brian, uh, who lives in Fort Worth, Texas, became an advocate for addressing drug driving. And he was working, you know, kind of big picture. And then he was able to funnel that down. And we, as an organization, helped him to identify oral fluid tests that could be used roadside as a screening device to help officers with some of that identification of drugs. And then there was a short pilot that was done. It was a one-year pilot. They did five counties. And then the next year, it was so successful that they said, let's do the whole state. So they did another year. The second report just came out and it is very favorable to show that the oral fluid test was between 95 and 96% accurate. The testing that, that the officers could do roadside is getting better and better and more refined. And so these are types of devices. But from that group that was working in Michigan, the idea was, well, how can we take this model and expand it to be more of a national? And so we've created a group they came up with the name of the National Alliance to Stop Impaired Driving called NACID. Not NSAIDs, like we might see from some of our medications, but NACID. And this is a group whose mission and purpose is to help prioritize multi-substance impaired driving at a federal, state, local, even tribal level. And being able to then bring in the resources and the various disciplines to address that. So we've been reaching out to law enforcement, judges, prosecutors, We've also reached out to um, industry members for oral fluid testing. So we have a number of companies that are coming on, a number of advocacy groups that are evaluating this. I think Anvil was even looking at this as well because it's, it's a full function of so many different arenas because it's not just about making the arrest and putting them in jail. There's how do we prevent to begin with? Then if we do have them, what do we do? Then we get to court and making sure that adjudications and, and that there's accountability. Then having folks from like the drug courts uh, being involved. And what about treatment? And then the assessment piece, because with drugs and with alcohol as well is, you know, especially repeat offender, what is the underlying root causes that we can impact if they come into the DOI system? How can we impact them so that they don't recidivate?
doing a, a screening or an assessment, what kind of risk are they? And then with one of the risk assessments that we've created with Harvard University, it's the computerized assessment and referral system called CARS, that it doesn't just screen them as far as a risk of impaired driving, that's part of it, but it's an assessment to determine, do they have a substance abuse and a co-occurring mental health disorder? And are they really using the drugs and the alcohol to help self-medicate for those mental health disorders? Are there some ways that we can actually create an intervention with those through this drug driving case? So it's bringing those folks together, all of us, to be able to attack this because we're seeing over 11,000 people lose their lives every year in impaired driving cases. And that needle has not moved in probably a decade. We've got to figure some other things out, but it takes a full court press. It takes education, the engineering piece, and looking at how do we create safer roads, pedestrians and bicyclists interacting with traffic, enforcement, another key element that we've seen this year with COVID and with some other issues, we've seen where enforcement's down, but we're seeing where vehicle miles traveled, you know, has decreased, I think around 13%, but yet fatals uh, crashes have increased significantly. And why is that? Especially during a pandemic, when you think that VMT would go down, why are fatals going up? So that's, uh, I think, some critical issues that we need to address and helping us to find a way to attack impaired driving. Now, we're having a conference that we're planning at the Renaissance Hotel. It's going to be an in-person, we hope, <laughs> July 29th and 30th in Arlington, Virginia. And we'll be focusing on the multi-substance or polysubstance use, some of the impacts, and we'll be highlighting and actually formally rolling out the National Alliance to Stop Impaired Driving um, organization, and then setting a very specific strategic plan for NACID and NACID members to begin addressing some of these very complex issues. And it's a real challenge. You have data issues. The data that we have for drug driving and that is incomplete. It takes sometimes two years before we get really complete data at a national level. We should be able to have more reliable day-to-day data that we can get, or at least more relevant data, so that we can make any of those changes that we need to. And then you look at the tox labs. We've got some amazing toxicologists in this country, but yet we have some challenges where the toxicology, they might have a policy that if they're over a 0.08 or a 0.10, that they do not do any further testing of that sample. We have some states that if they have a scheduled one drug that they've identified, they stop testing. And yet here you have a criminal case. Why are we only getting minimal evidence to then provide to a prosecutor to make a prosecuting decision? Do the whole thing. Now, some of that has to do with personnel, resource availability, and some of the differences we have across the country where their cutoff levels are very different. One state has 13 crime labs in state, or tox labs, yet they all use different cutoff levels and different procedures. We need to harmonize those. Other states, same thing. They've got three or four, and it's almost like why don't you have one centralized tox lab using the same process, the same procedures, the same cutoff levels, and especially with, you know, drugs, seeing what those cutoff levels are. The National Safety Council's provided a recommendation for states to adopt certain cutoff levels for drugs in the states so we can have harmonization. Because right now, it's kind of all over the board when you're looking at data. It's not apples and apples. It's apples, oranges, bananas, <laughs> a few pears thrown in there. 
So we really need to be able to help. And it's not a criticism. It's just things we recognize and ways that we can fix that. And so one of the things that we did when I first came in is I began working with a toxicologist, Amy Miles, from the University of Wisconsin Hygiene Laboratory. She's one of the state toxicologists. And we began working with her on what are some of these issues. And we have now contracted with her and the university to have her come in. For the next two years, we're going to do an assessment of all the labs um, across the country, looking at where the challenges are, barriers, funding opportunities, those kind of things to address the toxicology elements. Plus, she's got, you know, I was kidding somebody the other day, I says, and a lot of other duties as well. I mean, I have this whole deliverable sheet, but she is so excited to be able to be in this role because she feels that this can be a huge and significant game changer for all of us in the in the criminal justice arena. Because you see with, and it might not stand right out to all of the audience members, but when you look at drugs, the evidence that you're going to get in most of the states, predominantly most of the states, is blood. There are a few states where they get urine, but most of the states are blood. So you've got to get typically a search warrant. Then you've got to get the blood. That's very time consuming and you've got fleeting evidence. And so you've really be able to get that quick electronic search warrant and then be able to obtain blood. And so we're seeing like when I was in Washington, it was taking 239, 240 minutes for officers to get their blood sample and sometimes longer depending upon the availability of a judge. So we began working very similar to what Arizona Department of Public Safety does in creating a law enforcement phlebotomy program. So the officers could then take blood much quicker than having to wait for a doctor or nurse. And the officers, some people might go, oh my gosh, officers with a needle? They are fully trained and certified by the State Department of Health as a medical phlebotomist. The certifications that they do are equivalent to that. But the uh, policies, the internal policies that they wanted to have more samples taken or sticks taken for their like quarterly certification or recertifications, because the chief that did this said, I, I don't want any questions about what they've done. And so he went a little bit above and beyond what was normal even for the Department of Health. And that program has proven to be extremely effective because the hospitals actually came out with a letter and said, we are not an evidence gathering entity. We are a healthcare facility. If you want to have a person blood drawn for a, a DUI, you have to have them triaged, admitted, and then seen by a doctor. And so based on the triage, you can be putting down the list. In essence, the hospitals wanted out of doing that at all. And then they didn't want their personnel having to come in and testify. So states are starting to have to look at some new alternatives to approach that issue of making sure that the officers have good evidence for cases. Well, Darren, it's a complicated emerging issue. There, there's so much more to talk about. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time with today's episode, but we'll definitely have you back again as things continue to develop, as you learn more in this research and the data uh, shows itself with new countermeasures and new ways to prevent and hopefully eliminate impaired driving. And uh, it really all boils back down to um, behaving responsibly and don't get behind the wheel if something doesn't feel right. So there you have it. That was our conversation with Darren about drug driving. I want to thank Darren for spending so much time with us, providing us so much great information. I want to thank all of you for listening. And as always, I want to thank our producers of the AmbiCast, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for joining us for AmbiCast, hosted by Ian Grossman. 
produced by Claire Jeffrey. Music by Gibson Arthur. This episode is brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Visit us at ambacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.